Hello and welcome back. This is Lucy Tecca, back at it again with our space. Okay, so for this episode, I will be addressing social media as a progressive platform and current issues with sexual assault in Title IX on the HWS campus. So the main item on the agenda is the Instagram social media page at Share Your Story HWS, who gives which gives survivors of sexual assault a voice. It is a space where storytellers are heard and believed, and anyone can anonymously send in a submission by clicking the link in their bio. The platform also offers helpful threads and resources. So recently, I invited them to answer some questions I have because their, their page addresses really important topics in campus culture and is essentially storytelling and consciousness raising in action. Digitally. <laughs> the creators behind this page will remain anonymous and do not wish to have their voice used in this podcast, so I will be respecting their wishes by myself repeating what they answered um, over direct messaging. So let's get into what I've heard from them. Transition music right here. <laughs> okay, so I sent them a bunch of questions and they answered um, as best they could. So, according to them, we are extremely frustrated with the repeated abuse that we had endured, as well as almost every single girl on campus that we knew. Title IX was not that useful to the majority of students, and we wanted, to, we wanted a way for survivors to hold their abusers accountable. We had not known all the ways to go about making a platform, but actually saw other schools begin to do it, and they helped us start our own. Our page has been active during COVID. We received most of our submissions over our anonymous link, but do receive an occasional DM, direct message. So far, we have 115 submissions, not including the DM'd ones. Our mental health has been all over the place. Biden winning the election was a huge relief, but there is still so much work to do. We are super passionate about inequality and injustice in general, and although our page is focused on sexual assault, we will share anything we find important. Managing this platform and my work has been a struggle. Even without my work, it is a lot to take on. We have had to take multiple breaks, slowed down creating posts, and clear our brains. When receiving the submissions, as difficult as they are to read, they bring me a feeling of such relief, knowing that this person had gotten to the point where they could talk about their story, share it with the world, and help other people. I would never wish sexual assault on anyone, but the fact is that we cannot change the past, and so we can only try to change the future. When I receive a submission of someone recognizing their abuse, recognizing that they matter and did not deserve it, I feel hopeful. Campus sexual assault has been viewed as a women's issue because primarily it is exactly that. I mean women's issue as in they are typically the victims, but in no way responsible in attempting to prevent the matter. The stigmas that come along with this are dangerous although it is much more likely to get assaulted on a college campus as a female. It is also extremely possible, and it does happen on every single campus, that a male is a victim of sexual assault. Whether they know it or not, many victims internalize what has happened to them, and it is easier to deny it, or they feel as if it couldn't even be possible because they are strong, or they trusted the person. Yes, our college campus, and almost all, are hunting grounds. This is not to say that all men are going to college and plotting who are they going to sexually assault, but there are almost always those men there. I know of multiple people on our campus that are serial who are at a bar or on Tinder or with a group of friends and then when they get private 
things can switch up really quickly. This is super difficult to say because I feel like more women would speak up in class I, and would feel more comfortable existing on campus if Hobart men did not exist for a day. Social media is an extremely powerful tool. We are able to quickly spread information to such a large audience. These stories have done a few things. One, bring attention to the issue. Many guys and even girls think that sexual assault is not an issue simply because they are not experiencing it. And two, empowers others and lets them know that they are not alone, that what happened to them is not their fault. It is also a place where people can hold their abusers accountable if they want to. So far, we have only had a couple submissions which use names of the which use names the Me Too movement represent survivals of sexual assault coming forward with their stories and provide a safe community where people come forward and let their voices be heard. We wanted to bring that environment to the HWS campus as we felt that there wasn't enough attention on the numerous reported or unreported cases on campus. That being said, as empowering as a hashtag may be when used alone, it fails to bring attention to the severity and urgency of this movement. Seeing these... We believe that many people are scared to report to Title IX and campus safety due to the fact that our campus Title IX program, and the vast majority of them, lacks the urgency and support needed to come needed to report an incident. Also, if you look on our page, there have been numerous submissions complaining about Title IX and how they failed students of the HWS community. There is also a huge trend we have seen of people being feared they would not be believed, not be supported. Oftentimes, this is the case whether they are turned away by Title IX or even their friends or perpetrators' friends didn't believe them. Gen Z is using different kinds of social media to educate the people on sexual assault, so it's media platforms like this that allow people to learn and share information and awareness of sexual assault. Sexual assault isn't something to be hidden. It's very real and should be noticed and fixed. Our generation has all of these new amazing tools with technology and we have been using them. Many people know that Wednesdays are for Call Her Daddy <laughs> and despite the show, being a platform for two privileged white women who blatantly uphold misogynist and heteronormative ideals under the guise of female empowerment. Call Her Daddy also tends to offer advice to their listeners when it comes to how to act in relationships, normalize toxic romance, putting women in psychological danger. Although it may be entertaining, the show is definitely a great topic of debate. They do give some good sex advice, but remember to discuss with your partner first. <laughs> There's a lot of misogyny at HWS, and it's usually fabricated with an excuse or a reasoning for it being allowed. Although our campus claims it's about equality within the HWS community, it's proven that their efforts are not strong enough to make the campus inclusive and equal for all. There are many examples of how this is carried out, but one is being that William Smith is more difficult to get into than Hobart since we receive more applicants, further proving that we, women, need to work harder to get where we want to go. Even though this is getting better, there are still a majority of male professors. There are still professors spewing sexist rhetoric without facing consequences. We have one submission of a professor targeting a student for their sexual orientation and giving her a bad grade. 
after calling them out on saying some really crude, demeaning stuff in class. After sharing this submission, we had some others reach out about the same professor. These are just a few examples. The school 100% uses our black and brown students to promote diversity at our school despite being mostly white and programs offered to benefit students consist of mainly white students. More so, the school publicly labeled a photo of a black student with the name of a different black student that they were working with. The majority of programs The school, the majority of programs we have are focused on white people. There have been many reports of staff racially profiling students. There were officers on campus wearing blue life, blue lives matter masks, harassing black and brown students and security wasn't even there apparently. Taking this a step further, intersectionality is not the goal. Simply mixing a bunch of students of all different colors on the same campus is not the goal as long as not all students are being treated equally with the same respect and opportunities. We need much more than intersectionality. Next, I will be speaking with Mercy Sherman of the Rising Panthers, a student-led organization committed to anti-racism on campus and decolonializing all aspects of the curriculum. All right, so Mercy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight about Rising Panthers. Um, so let's get right into it. So I have a couple of questions. Um, okay. So I was wondering how um, this organization and the social media platform started and um, how the members sort of connected. I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in, like, late May, um, especially around when the Black Lives Matter movement, um, uh, I don't want to say began, because it's always been a very important thing, um, I remember so there, there was like a, the, um, the Zoom webinar um, with President Jacobson, uh-huh. um, yeah, so, I remember that very yeah, well. yeah, so basically, um, I always had problem with the institution, especially HWS, mm -hmm. like, um, <laughs> and just like, it's a whole nother reality for like students of color on campus that I feel like white students are not aware of or not exposed to. It's like, we live in two separate worlds on campus. So, uh, I mean, it kind of reflects perfectly like the nation, honestly, because um, the two different realities of, like, people of color versus, like, um, white people. So, I guess with HWS, it started off basically with President Jacob. Well, I got upset mm -hmm. because um, I didn't attend the Zoom meeting with President Jacobson, the parent Zoom meeting. It was, um, 
where she stated that systemic racism is not an issue for Geneva. Um, and I wasn't at that meeting, and I was supposed to be at that meeting, but I had, you know, class over the summer. I was doing May Messer mm-hmm. and summer sessions. <laughs> so basically, I was on Facebook, and um, one of my friends posted it. Um, you know, one, someone that follows me, and I follow them back. And I was just like, Oh, not Facebook, sorry, Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whoa. Um, Instagram. <laughs> and basically, I was like, holy shit, is this for real? Yes. Like, did she really just, like, am I really watching this right now? And especially with everything that is going on, and, and especially because during the time I was protesting with the PPP, the uh, people, peaceful protest in Geneva, mm-hmm. and for the president of HWS, which is such a big part of Geneva community, um, like, because, you know, we, HWS provide jobs to people in Geneva, it's just like, and they hold a lot of power here in Geneva because literally, I feel like Geneva. Um, it's not really, yeah, like, HW is such, like, a big part of Geneva. It takes up a lot of space in Geneva, and it's just, mm-hmm. like, and it divides Certainly. Geneva. Literally, if you think about it, like, all the wealthiest people in Geneva is associated with HWS. Like, all the professors, all the, you know, um, the administration that lives in Geneva, they all associate with Geneva. And the great part of Geneva is, like, there's a huge chunk of Geneva that is very poor, so... I was just like, I can't believe she would say something like this mm-hmm. with the protests that's happening in Geneva, which undermines the Black Lives Matter movement in Geneva when she stated that, saying like, oh, basically, I don't know why they're protesting, but systemic racism is not a problem here. Like, I don't know what, and it, it was just shocking for me to hear as a president of an institution that have students of color there, which is basically stating there's no systemic racism in Geneva. There's all that's basically stating there's no systemic racism at HWS because HWS is part of the Geneva community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just upsetting. So basically, I pretty much started texting some of my friends about the issue, and I started a group chat, and I initially emailed an angry letter to a bunch of professors and like cc a bunch of people into it um and nothing happened from there like some professor replied and said like well that's messed up but that was bad so then i was just like that's not good enough and i basically um emailed and then i wrote an email to president jacobson that jody professor jody dean Mm -hmm. um Yep. She's the, uh, she works in the political science department. Yes, I had her. Uh, and the, yep. Yeah, sending my email to the whole school. Yes, I remember that very well. And I remember I watched the webinar live with my parents sitting on either side of me. And I do remember President Jacobson saying that systemic racism wasn't an issue. And it. I remember thinking, okay, there was something wrong with this. And then Uh I remember looking at my parents, and I remember being like, my mother being like, oh, okay, good, that's a really good thing. And I was like, holy shit. She just, (laughs) it it was like she was spoon-feeding my parents that that lie. So I I definitely believe that there was something wrong with that. So systemic racism is a problem for the whole entire country, regardless where you are in the country, because of colonialism and like and slavery basically like it's still ingrained in our system um so it's just to hear an educator with a phd and that is running our school say something like that was very absurd to me and it's just like well i don't know who had you that phd but they're gonna revoke that right now and the question i actually have the question of that was asked at the parent zoom meeting was what are you going to do about systemic racism if you send black students and students of color to the hospital? So that was the question that she was answering on the Zoom meeting. And it's just like, wow, like, I can't believe that was her response, which was just absurd. So basically, after my letter, um, my friend, I reached out to my friend Lulu, and I was like, Lulu, right now it's just 
about this. So can you write another letter and I'm going to have it passed around for students to sign it saying that Mm -hmm. we need an apology. Um, And then, so basically that started, um, and then, like, I end up saying, well, this isn't, we need to do something more, and I'm just fed up with HWS, and I was just like, whoa, um, and I started texting some people and some, like, black women that, um, of color, you know, black women, basically, um, and at first, like, it wasn't, the group wasn't just strictly black women, uh, well, black students, I should say, um, but um, it was, it was consisting of, like, we had just, like, it was just a mix of students of color. We also had, like, some white students joining, and that's how it originally started. And we were planning, and we started to do a list of demands, and mm-hmm. the team came up with the name Rising Panthers, and I was like, yo, that's lit. Yes, um, yes, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so it was just, like, we were just, like, and we were planning for the fall because we didn't want the fall to start and like we wanted our demands already like going around and just already circulating and then I was and then I created an Instagram page because I just because so many people were like texting me personally and I was just like um I should just create an Instagram page at this point like so they can have the link to the demands they can just just follow it and that's just how we and that's just how that started but over the summer we did all the planning and all the organizing we purposefully wanted the first uh, protest to be the first day of school. Like um, mm-hmm. like that during that first week. Like we specifically planned that because we wanted to set the president. Like we wanted to set, um, like know, like make campus know that we are here as a group and like, mm-hmm. and especially attract first-year students to let them know like hey you're coming to this racist school like this racist environment and like don't get fooled <laughs> like so that <laughs> was our great. main yeah. thing and um like the first day was just to share awareness that pretty much black student life matters um and it, the group kind of ended up changing from like a mix of I guess I should say like it was very it wasn't just black students, but then at the more we looked at it, we felt like there should the organizers should strictly be uh, black students. Mm-hmm. So that's how that happened. That was the formation of the group. Yes, yes, I remember. I remember. Um, I remember the um, messages or the letters rather back and forth between you and President Jacobson, and I signed my name and um, to be a part of it. So yeah, I, I remember that very well. Um, yeah, she apologized on the Evan Dawson show. Mm-hmm. I didn't listen to it, but I, yeah, yeah I reckon, I remember um, that. Wait, what were you going to say? Sorry. That's okay. Um, and so you said you created the Instagram page to make things much more accessible to spread news and awareness online as well as in person as well too. Mm-hmm. Yeah the big advantage of social media especially in this generation this era with so much online activism as well um and I was wondering what you feel your sort of role in the organization is you mentioned that you um that you're the one who kind of began the whole thing with with President Jacobson and um uh, and then, let's see, I also have here what actions have been taken. You mentioned the um, protests at the beginning of the year, the demands. Um, uh, could you, uh, I remember reading through all of them, and one of them was Sodexo, um, but could you remind me what the rest of them are? Um, yeah, so, um, okay, the first, you asked me a bunch of questions here. <laughs> Sorry okay. about that. which is like a grassroots organization because we're not like a club. We're not trying to be any like associated with the school, like being by like an official club because there will be restriction. Like I'm, they're not going to, you know, <laughs> we can't be a club pretty much doing the stuff that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Yeah, so, and then also, if you didn't hear, like, the thing with President Jacob say, it's on my Instagram page, and if you want to listen to it, because I posted the the short um, minute of where she actually apologized on there. And then, secondly, um, the reason why, actually, we had to create an Instagram page is because the administration got really upset that... Um, I was going through professors to send out our emails. Hmm. Um, so that was the real reason because I was like, well, um, I needed a way to get students to get, like, it's like they didn't want students to know. It's like, I don't know why. It's like they were trying to hide it or like they did not want students or parents to be aware of it. And they literally got upset um, over that situation that we were using the email and saying like, it's, yeah, so basically we don't have access to any sort of emails and getting to the whole student body except for our Instagram page. And a lot of students, we know still that we have an Instagram page and we post stuff on there because we only have about like 400-something followers. So, And there's more students that go to HWS. So, so there's mm-hmm. that. That's the reason why. And um, your other questions surrounding... Uh, my role is basically, I guess I'm just like the founder of this, basically. And I'm just, but I don't, in the group, I don't have a more of an important role than another student in the group. We're all sort of equal. We don't make any decisions while I'm voting on it. Mm-hmm. We, um, yeah, there's not like a hierarchical kind of stuff. Like, it's just not like that. Um yeah, it's kind of like a family, our group. It's like we wanted to keep it small because when a, with a bigger group, it gets harder to organize, and it's just, it just gets harder and messy. So we kept it small. And uh, and then with our demands, to answer that question, there is eight demands total. Mm-hmm. And the first one was the DESCO. I can't remember them all in order, but um, – and I remember the first one was the desk and the last one was the board of trustees. But we also wanted, so the first one dropped the desk, but we wanted to completely drop. We had a demand on the um, diversifying the student population, mm-hmm. which was directly about um, emissions. And, um, and like diversifying the student population, not just through sports, like not just like recruiting students just for sports because – um, that is also a way where, like, um, what do you call it? Like, I feel Including. like a lot of time institutions, like, they prioritize, like, sports players and, like, just think that's all, like, I don't know, African Americans are basically good for, which is also a problem to me. It's like, you should be recruiting students in the arts, recruiting black students in all fields, not just, you know, not just mainly for sports. So we yeah. wanted that in there, um, that in general, it's not just black students, but students of color in general, like, the school needs to be diversified. If you look at the statistics of the school, it doesn't meet up with other colleges um, in the country or in New York State of how low, um, I think it's like 79% of the student at HWS is white. Mm-hmm. 79%, which is a problem. It's huge. Um, and, and the rest is literally split between um, Asians, Blacks, and Hispanics. Um, it's not really that diverse. So it's, that's a problem. So we trying to we wanted that to, you know, get raised a little like a little more or actually a lot more. It's like if it was up to me, it'd be fifty fifty, you know? Yeah. That's like, you know, a better equal world out there. But um mm-hmm. our next demand was we also have one on diversifying the faculty population too. Yeah. Um and not just recruiting more faculty of color, but also retaining more faculty of color because Right now, that statistic is 84% of our faculty is white, and the rest is, um, you know, a faculty of color. So that's still way below the national average. Like, we're not even average. We're below it. So this is a problem that the school needs to fix. 
And the thing is, too, and um, and that's just the faculty we have, and not even including ten years. Like a lot of faculty of color is not tenure on campus. Um, so there's that. There, most of them are contingent faculty, which the school is cutting next year uh, because of budget. So it's like, are we going to lose all our faculty of color? Like I don't, we don't know. Um, so that's in my like, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Our other demand was also on oh the IC, which is the International Culture Affairs Center, which is like. And that's just the only space on campus that I go there all the time. Like, that's, like, my second home, basically. And that is, is for students of color. It's, like, the only space that is, like, you feel safe in. Like, it's, like, you know you're going to go, and it's not a white space. Um, and mm-hmm. we wanted that to be remodeled because um, it's just, it's the same building and it's like the same furniture and the same everything. And like, um, and for years, students have been advocating for that building to be fixed up, for that building to just get remodeled or get a whole new building or so that we've strongly been advocating for that. Um, we also, another demand we have was on Oh, my brain. I don't even know what I said so far. Oh. Um, oh, the FSM, the first-year seminar. Yes. So the faculty in the first-year seminar actually voted on this, and it was 87% of the faculty said that the first-year seminar should implement um, race, power, and struggle. Because the thing is, education is the key to um help like abolish like systemic racism like in yes. general like in general so we wanted a way to implement in the curriculum um a anti-racist like we want an anti-racist curriculum i mean cornell is already working on implementing this ithaca has so many colleges have been implementing anti-racist curriculum not just in their first year seminar but in within the whole entire mm-hmm. curriculum of the school mm-hmm. um and people get confused because they're like wow all our classes are going to be about race like that's not what that means like each department um each like i guess i don't want to call it department but like subject i guess or field of field yeah. have contributed to the oppression of people of color and especially black people um, in the United States. So it's literally also learning like how chemistry, how um, biology, the arts, the um, especially the arts with cultural appropriation, the um, you know political science, like every single field is not exempt from, um, from this basically. Um, so there's that. So we were thinking about like, okay, we need to catch up. And this is not like a radical idea because it's mm-hmm. being done in other universities and other colleges. It's like we're just behind in everything. Like we're just below average in everything, it seems like. Um, Certainly. It sounds we like all, we really need to wake yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> like it's literally, it's not. I mean, like, even with my, um, in our demand, like, I saw the link of, like, Cornell, like, president email that was talking about um, how they're implementing, like, some of their things they're changing um, at their institution to make it more, like, like, diverse and to combat systemic racism. And I just don't, it's not like what we're asking for is not like a new thing. Like, other colleges have done it. It's not... Something, yeah. So basic. Okay. So the first year seminar, we also felt like the board of trustees the key. Yes, President Jacobson is like our president, but in reality, though, she has power. But basically, it's the board of trustees. You know, nothing will happen on campus while on the board of trustees being hundred percent on board with it. So our um, we had a demand that was specifically requesting for the board of for the student body to have. Um, more access, not just students of color, but like the whole student body to have more access to the board of trustees. Because, um, yeah, there's systemic racism, but how about accessibility? You know, how about making the mm-hmm. school more accessible for disabled 
um, certainly people. You know, certainly. Yeah, so it's like there's a lot of problems on campus. That campus is so not accessible. Like, there is not elevators in every building. There's not ramps everywhere. There's not – it's just not accessible. So just having access more to the Board of Trustees and – um, so through that, the Board of Trustees created a diversity committee within the Board of Trustees. Um, so, but I still have a problem with that whole process um, that can get through later, but it's not really that important. Um, so I'm trying to think another, uh, did I cover all eight demands? I don't even remember how much I said right now. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know if I cover all eight or not. But, know. yeah, that's basically what our demand. Yeah. Um, and I remember um, I'm on the Williams-Pip rowing team, and I remember um, in terms of accessibility, I remember there was um, uh, one member who was injured who had surgery on her legs, and um, she was she wasn't in a wheelchair, but she was on crutches for a really long time, yeah. and she kept talking about how inaccessible things were and how hard it was and um and uh let's see as of this year on the men's rowing team there are two men of color everyone else is white and um Uh we had a conversation before we left for november break and um one of them really emphasized as you did on education and awareness and that it all starts with education so mm-hmm. I wanted to mention that as well. Um, yeah. Yes. And with the demands, I recall that you presented them to President Jacobson. Um, mm-hmm. And have any of them, like, really started to push through? Like, how's the progress going on all of that? So since we uh, physically handed a demand to President Jacobson, because we actually, like, physically in front of people handed it to her um, with the signatures, mm-hmm. um, we've had three meetings this whole entire semester. <clears throat> and I did an update recently on the Rising Panthers Instagram about, like, how those meetings went, which, the institution response overall was um, they didn't have a uh, a critique. Um, well, not critique. That's not the word. A concrete. Oh my god, <laughs> a concrete plan for anything. They just their response was literally it's like we're gonna have more conversation about all of them. But the problem is they, there's been conversations being had, and this is a strategic thing that institutions typically do to just tire out organizers because it's like how many conversations we need to have. It's like, um, it's one thing is like, they need to like say, okay, we're going to invest $3 million or $4 million into, um, um, combating systemic racism on our campus, which is like, if it's going towards, um, anti-racist trainings for professors and so on, or if it's like going towards um, better in- recruiting or um, um, faculty of color or like students of color, like just saying basically we're going to invest. They haven't even said that. Like they haven't even looked at their budget and be like, you know what? Or saying like we're going to do a capital campaign just to combat systemic racism on our campus like a capital fundraising campaign to combat systemic racism on our campus. They haven't, that's the problem. Cause like, you can't really change the, you need like, you need money to back up what you're saying. But basically mm-hmm. it's just, we're going to have more conversation about this. I mean like 3 million, I know it sounds like crazy, but the sport dome, I know that money was specifically donated for the sport dome. So it's like a, a different situation, but they could have right now people are more um interested and willing to donate money towards anti-racist um or combating systemic racism or COVID-19 like those are the two things that people are very um motivated about right now in mm-hmm. the world so it's like using that energy to help HWS but the thing is the colleges it's just like they're not even willing to even try to even 
I don't even know how to explain it. And it's like, honestly, fundraising is not really the problem because just last year, the colleges raised, I think it was like $27 million or something like that. And it's the most money they ever raised in a year um, in the whole entire college history. And the year prior to that was like $6.5 million and it's $27 million. So it's like, why don't you just give $5 million of that $27 million towards anti-racist work? Like, I mean... Um, anti-racism work like why aren't you doing something to better the school for students of color unless they don't care and that's just kind of the sense I've been getting from these meetings um it's literally like they didn't they don't have any plans they haven't even backed it up with money there's not even like a guarantee they're going to do stuff it's just we're going to continue to have conversation and that's not very I guess, I don't know how to explain it, but it's not really assure, like reassuring us that the school is going to get better. Um, but basically, too, with the Sodesco thing that's really frustrating me is um, there's just so many misconceptions surrounding Sodesco and the contract and just so many lies that the institution, I feel like, been telling students over and over again um, surrounding the contract. That's not the case. Um, yeah, so we had a meeting with corporate Sodesco. This was the very last meeting a couple of weeks ago. Well, corporate Sodesco, President Jacobson, and someone from the finance office that I'm always forgetting her name. Um, but she's in charge, like, she's basically in charge of, like, HWS contracts and money and whatever. But yeah, and basically, oh, and Rising Panthers and student government also join us on that meeting. Um, and then we also always invite three professors and three um, um, alums to join too as well. So that meeting was just frustrating because, again, it was just like we need to have more conversation. President Jacobson said that um, – she feels as if, like, it's going to cost way too much to get rid of Sodesco because what we ended up finding out was the Sodesco contract, like, the reason, like, the contract renews every year, but that's not the reason why we still have Sodesco. It's not anything about the renewing of the contract. It's just that HWS is debt to Sodesco as a whole because they're the one who did the renovations on Stanley Center in 2016. Um, so, um, yeah, and that renovation was like $4 million, like $4-point-something million, and we still owe them like $3-point-something million, with estimating going to be ended like in 2029, I think they said. Um, but still, though, it's just, I feel like it all depends on where the priority lies. And, um, and so that's sort of not the one who's forcing us to have a meal plan. Um, that's one thing I learned at that meeting, too, is actually the school, the one who is forcing students to have a meal plan. That's not a part of the contract. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous. The whole situation is ridiculous. What I've learned so far is, like, the school is greedy. They only care about money. Well, shocker there, they're a business. And mm. number two, um, yeah, number two, they, they're not serious. They're just not serious about our demand. They're, if they were, they will come with, like, some kind of a plan. There's no concrete plan. There is no um, there's no reassurance. There's not, like, a 100% guarantee on any of our demands. There's not, like, there's nothing. There's not, like, oh, we're going to – yeah, there's – there's absolutely nothing. Basically, these meetings was a waste of my time. Um, and, I mean, what do you expect? Like, mm. yeah. So, yeah, that's just the progress. Um, which is not really a lot of progress. Um, yeah, it was just having more conversation. And some people will say, I guess, you got to talk about the problem. But it's just like, how students been talking about this forever. But... Yeah. I mean, how long do you need to be talking about it for actions to actually be taken? <laughs> um, I think their hope is like we will graduate and then 
nobody would be talking about it for like at least one or three or three more years. And then it's going to get bring up again and they're going to act like it's a whole new idea. Um, oh. And then it's going to die off again. But even when I graduate, I'm still going to be fighting HWS. I don't care because <laughs> it's messed up what's going on at the school. Um, I'm going to be a very active, active alum and helping students of color because I know what I had to go through at this college and I don't want any other student of color to have to go through that same stuff ever. Yes. That sounds excellent. Um, let's see. Let's see. Um, all right. So for you personally in general, what do you like the most about our generation, that being Gen Z right now, <laughs> um, as well as social media activism? Because I remember, especially during quarantine, I saw a lot of things on um, TikTok <laughs> and um, how... Our generation like completely pranked Trump's Tulsa rally and I was just wondering what you thought about um, um, our, like this sort of day and age with uh, like hashtag activism and um, uh -huh. all these accounts dedicated to fighting um, social injustice yeah I love our generation. I think mm -hmm. we're the best generation. Well, and again, I am biased, so, <laughs> because I'm in this generation. But I love our generation. And the great thing about social media and just technology in general, that is, there is different than um, any other movement that has happened because, um, in the past, because of access, like how easy it is to just go on Instagram Mm -hmm. um, and see something that is happening millions of miles away from us. Or, like, you know, it's just literally it's easy access, and it provides awareness that yes. – um, and it kind of helps to, like, this um, – it's like that learning thing. Like, the key to abolish anything is – I honestly think is you need to mentally emancipate yourself um, um, and, like, kind of rewire the way you think because – um, and technology, that, like in social media in general, allow us to do that very easily because the information is right there. We don't have to look for it. We don't. We can see it firsthand. Like the um, Daniel Prude incident that happened in Rochester, um, or the George um, George Floyd incident, Breonna Taylor. It's like there are actual videos of what happened. It's like that's like a you getting it from the, like firsthand. It's not like you're reading about it or getting someone opinion about it or mm -hmm. um I mean there's opinions out there, but like you're not getting it from a second source. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like everybody can actually see um uh, George Floyd dying as a white cop pretty much kneel on his neck. Um and it's like you can't dismiss that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's what social media allows, um, that is making this movement, like this black, this wave of Black Lives Matter movement more powerful and more effective than, um, I guess, than previous, um, like in, like, if you compare it to, like, um, the 60s with the Civil Rights Movement or even prior to that, um, you it's not the same response. So it's like, honestly, social media is, I think, um, is just, like, giving people, like, that firsthand experience, that firsthand knowledge is not, you know, it's not coming from a um, another source or a biased source or, like, whatever. It's, like, you can see it for yourself and make your own judgment and your own opinion. And I think that's the beauty of social media. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just feel like it, it just helps the movement and it just makes as um i guess advocating and social justice work a lot easier yes. um because honestly if i think about it like i put something on instagram on our rising panthers instagram and all of a sudden we got like 300 likes or like 300 people saw in it or like it got shared like this many times and it's just um <clears throat> it's just it's faster to get information out there it's like it's just yeah, it's magical, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And without it, I don't think this movement would be what it is, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, 
All right, as for my last wondering, um, personally, as a woman of color, what has your experience at HWS been like, um, and why did you choose HWS in the beginning? Um, I believe you are a junior, correct me if I'm wrong? Yeah, I'm a junior. All right. Um, yeah. What have your... HWS? Okay, you see the thing is, so I can't, I graduated from... Basically, all, all white high school. Basically, mm-hmm. like that is even less diverse than HWS. Um, like I was only there for like my junior and senior year um, in Wii Sport. But basically, when I chose HWS, I wasn't really thinking. Um, well, I mean, obviously, I knew it was an all white institution, um, but they basically offered me the most money. Mm. Um, like that's what it comes down to, you know. They offer me the most money, um, because I feel like they really don't have a lot of like students of color that attempt HWS, and I feel like that's the way they get us is giving us money. Um, and number two is I just wanted I wanted to go to a smaller university, a smaller college. I didn't want to go to like a big university. I wanted to, I knew I wanted a liberal arts education. Um, so that way I can explore different departments and actually see if I really want to major in political science at the time. I came in as a political science major, and I'm still a political science major. But it's like being a liberal arts school, giving the opportunity to take dance classes. I love dancing. I love, um, like, I do Kashari every year. Mm-hmm. It's just it gives me more opportunity to explore different things. With, that was one of the perks of a, um, a liberal arts school. But I also applied to Lemoyne. I also applied to Duke. Um, which was is a bigger school in um, Boston mm-hmm. University, but mm-hmm. um, I applied to some big school and a lot of small schools, and I knew also I wanted to stay in New York State to be closer to my family so I can help them out more. Um, and HWS is like not far away from Rochester where I'm from, and and I just thought with the location, the money. And the fact that they're a liberal arts, really. Um, and when I came to visit, um, I didn't like the school. I hated the school, but I did apply early decision because at the end of the day, being a black person in this country, if you're from like a uh, institution that is mostly, like if I get a degree from Hobart, it's a very prestigious school, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the degree is like, I mean, if you compare it to like Lemoyne or like some other colleges around here, HWS is a little better. You know what I mean? So basically, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they have a great reputation. So I was thinking like, you know, it's an all white school and like, you know, and it's a white world. So I should just go and just like basically learn how to live in like this world that is like, you know, and just, um, and basically, yeah, and I just figured it would help me get into law school and just help me just because I have the degree. Like, you know, like it, it holds, you know, if you go to a prestigious college and you're applying to grad school, that holds like a little weight, you know? They're like, whoa, okay. So that's mainly why I picked HWS. It was mostly because of the money at the end of the day. Yeah, back to the business side of things. <laughs> Yeah, at the end of the day, I had to weigh my option. Like, I don't have a lot of money, and my family don't. So it was just, like, where I can get the most aid and the most everything. And, like, I'm in HOP um, at HWS. But, like, when I applied to Lemoyne, for example, um, I applied to, like, five colleges. And for some reason, I'm only thinking of Lemoyne right now. But when I applied to Lemoyne... Um, I didn't get accepted into HGOP because, um, but I got accepted into HOP at HWS. So it's like weighing that option too. So um, in HGOP, because it's like, it makes no sense because I had too high of a grade to get into HOP at Lemoyne, which is kind of dumb. But um, yeah, um, yeah, that's a whole nother program. I feel like a lot of people don't understand about but yeah, like when I was talking about, we live in two separate worlds on campus. But yeah, mm. 
I totally feel that too. And, um, I came from a similar high school. Um, I'm from Massachusetts and Wellesley High School was certainly predominantly white. Um, and I totally understand where you're sort of coming from there. Um, but at HWS, do you have any personal, like, I don't know, stories where, I don't know, I don't know why I'm coming up with this question. Oh, yeah. Your other question, I forgot. Your other question was, like, wait, can you, okay, I answer why I went to pick HWS, but you had another question. What was it again? Sorry, about, like, my experiences at HWS? Yeah. Have you had, like, positive experiences, negative experiences? Okay, so my experience at HWS is very similar to a lot of students of color experience at HWS because we all talk. Um, and basically, I remember even like this because I came earlier to school, like over the summer before I was officially matriculated and took classes. So, um, and just from that, like I had an opportunity to meet upperclassmen that really broke down HWS for me, like by pieces. And I was like, whoa, okay. And we all kind of look out for each other because, you know, it's not that many of us on campus. Um, so basically, I guess the rhetoric is basically the same and the experience, like the experience that student of color is basically very similar. Um, and a specific experience is like one thing being um, like I've been the only black person in a, in like some of my classes, like the only one, um, mm. the only like person of color in some of my classes. Um, and just sitting there and just listening to some white students defend really racist uh, perspective, it's kind of hard, you know, when you're just like, you know, sitting right next to them, like the roll right over. Um, and just listen to someone just being um, degrading towards you is very hard to do, one. and But that's something, like, I feel like it's sad, but I'm used to doing because, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and also having, like, um, like, one time, like, I talked about this on, because I was so mad. Like, I did a live video on Instagram once um, when a professor said my uh, hair look um basically look like a bird nest so it's like things like that um you know like i'm very like self-conscious when i wear my natural hair out it's like everybody stares for some reason it's like dang you never seen like an afro before or like you have people just come and touch your afros like oh i want to feel a texture like don't touch my hair like it's just different <laughs> it's it's like oh you're so exotic you're so like whoa like whoa how is stand up or how does it do like how I do that like um and it's just like the like just stuff about our hair and that's like racist behavior because I don't look at your hair and be like whoa it's so exotic it's so this it's like let me touch it like why are you touching me or like sometimes they won't even ask permission they will just touch it like as if like I'm their pro well anyway so there's that so a lot of students probably talk about the hair piece um or are you being in a class where the professor um, you know, say something like very racist and, you know, they're tenured, so there's nothing that can happen to them. I had to deal with racist professor. Um, I had to, and there's certain professors on campus that most students of color would be like, never take a class with. And we just avoid, which is kind of a shame because that limits you to certain majors too, at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, because like, you know, like some departments only have about like five professors in it and if one of them races you're gonna have to eventually take a class with them and you're just like well i can't have that major because of this professor see it's it's like the same thing with the accessibility thing it's like you can't access that building because there's no elevator it's like well i mean we only have really students in wheelchairs on campus like well i can't take be a chemistry major because there's no elevators in that building or you know mm -hmm. so it's just things like that um but it's things that we are used to, and I guess I'm I'm used to, and I'm a little bit too used to to it, and that you forget that it's wrong because you get so used to living um, like that. Like I mean, my sophomore year, 
Oh, there's another incident. I try to go to a frat party. You know, I have white friends on campus. Like, I'm not... Um, and and it was actually my freshman year when I tried to go to a frat party, and they literally stopped um, me. Like, a lot of my friends didn't, but then they stopped me and were like, oh, you can't enter. Um, we're not allowing any more people. So when I start walking away, next thing you know, more people enter. And I was just like, okay. So there's, like, little things like that. Like, students of color don't go to frat parties. Like, our social life on campus is completely different. Like, um, we have our parties separately. I feel like all the white kids go to beef and brew and frat parties or whatever, and they do their thing and we do our mm-hmm. thing. But our parties is heavily policed by campus safety for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, the and I guess and the reason is, like, I don't know, because we're black, but I don't know. But I don't know their reasons, but they heavily police us than um, in our social life on campus than, like, white student social life on campus because I've heard stories from, like, some of my white friends that would say, like, oh, yeah, campus safety came in and they saw, like, weed on our desk and, you know, whatever, and they didn't do anything about it. But I'm like, what? Campus safety coming to, like, uh, one of my friend's room or whatever and see something like that, it's like we have a whole case with Brandon Burrelli. You know what I mean? Like, mm. um, so it's little things like that. I don't smoke and I don't like do drugs at all, but <clears throat> in Comstock, um, one of the, uh, what's it called? I can't remember her name, but house manager person or whatever, mm. smelled marijuana and assumed that was coming out of my bedroom. And I'm the only one, like, I really don't, that's the crazy part about it, because I really, I don't smoke. Um, I mean, like, I've tried it before, I'm going to be bluntly honest, because I'm in college, but, like, I didn't like it, and I just, it wasn't for me. But it's like, why are you assuming that it's, like, coming from my room, or assuming, like, it's my friends in my room that's doing something like that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, there's that. It's just, there's the list goes on about the how much racist stuff we have to deal with on a daily basis. I usually encounter a racist um, thing like basically almost every day, almost every day on campus. And it's kind of hard to deal with it. And sometimes you have to wait it. Is this something I need to make a really big deal about it? Or is it just your typical racist, like microaggression, whatever? think today you know there's certain things we let go because you have to let go i will be yelling at the institution every second of the day but certain things you just have to just be like oh well it's you have to weigh how racist it is um there's another example there was a white dude at a party last year it was my sophomore year um that threatened and said the lives of students of color on campus and said that he was going to shoot all these n-words and like um especially with all the school shootings that have been going on and i feel like the school wasn't very transparent with that with the students or parents because i feel like if i was a parent and a white student made such a threat like that and i have a you know my child going there i want to know that you know with school shootings that they weren't transparent with students i feel like all students of color on campus needed to know exactly what happened they weren't transparent about the case. They weren't nothing. And, like, one of the uh, students who was involved in that case still remain on campus. So it's just, I don't know how to explain it. Like, it's a, it's just a lot of, yeah, it's a lot. Like, I can go on with examples Well, how much, yeah. I mean, on <laughs> there's a mm-hmm. whole... Uh, Instagram page called Black at HWS. Yes. Mm-hmm. That talks about like student of um, color experience on campus. Um, and it's all very similar because I go through and but oh, yep, I, I experienced that. Oh, definitely experienced that. Yep. Oh, I just experienced that yesterday. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it just gets old. It's too many to count. I'm sure. I'm sure. It is. And then there was like the whole Harold thing. You remember like with the, the graffiti around campus? Um, the spring of um, my sophomore year, like all that mess that happened right before Jacobson came, or maybe it was the spring of my freshman year. I can't remember now. Okay. Yeah. I think that was before my time. <laughs> I don't remember. But Yeah, I think it was freshman year. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that was the year before I was there. Uh-huh. Mm. And so it sounds like there is a sort of complex, I don't know, power dynamic where there's privilege and prejudice sort of combined, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. There really is. It's like, literally, it's two different worlds. And I'm starting to realize this because the more I talk to, like, some of those, like, um, like, my white friends on campus and then, like, my black friends on campus or my friends of color in general on campus, and I'm just like, whoa, like, you guys get away with this? It's like, if that ever happened, like, oh, my God, I can't only really imagine. Like, I'll probably get kicked out of school. So referring back to what Mercy mentioned about the Black at HWS Instagram account, the account presents itself as a safe space for Black students, staff, alumni, and faculty to share their stories. The purpose is to share stories that shed light on the racial climate at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Submissions will remain anonymous, but given the year of the incident is encouraged, and the account is not associated with the official HWS Colleges Instagram page. Submissions are taken via DMs or the link in their bio. According to a handful of submissions, being black at HWS is taking a class on race and the only people in the room are people of color minus one or two white people. Often those one or two white people are taking the class to meet one of the goals rather than to actually learn. It means going to a barn party instead of a frat because the barn party is inclusive of everybody and you know you won't be denied because of the color of your skin. It means being tokenized in this week in photos so they can make the campus look diverse. It means being asked by a professor to speak for all black people on a singular topic. And as of 2019, in the admissions office itself, there were only about six to seven black student workers, a handful of which are commonly tokenized on campus to show up how diverse and inclusive HWS is. Being a person of color means the cops being called on you for speaking your own native tongue in the shuttle. It means having your black professor, who also happens to be a woman, Ignore and not pick the comments and thoughts of women of color while flattering surface-level thoughts of white boys. And the experiences with racism, microaggressions, or identity do not stop there.